With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Rahul Tandon. Thank you so much for joining us. Despite a new offer from General Motors, those strikes at US car plants, well, they're still going on. They're telling us there's no more money while they loot the company through the back door. We'll have more on that later, but we're going to talk a lot on this programme about Argentina. It is in the middle of an economic crisis with inflation at above 130%. Argentinians are going to vote for a new government this weekend. Our South America correspondent, Katie Watson, is in the capital, Buenos Aires. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. When you think of Argentina after Lionel Messi, you think of inflation. Tell us about the, the main candidates in this election and what their economic plans are. Well, there are three main candidates. Um, there is the former security minister, Patricia Buric, who is on the, uh, a conservative. Um, there is uh, Sergio Massa, who's the current economy minister. Um, and then there is Javier Milei, who is a bit of a wild card, I think most people would probably agree. He was a, um, he's, and he's the front runner. Um, he is from neither of the kind of traditional camps. In fact, he makes very clear that he is... is um, of Argentina that he is a genuine kind of Argentinian like everybody else um, but he has some quite uh, such as he wants to demolish the central bank he wants to bring in the dollar as the official currency um, he, he's also uh, you know he's a, he's a far right candidate who believes in restricting abortion rights um, and loosening gun laws I mean he's a certainly a, a character that has upended uh, the, the, the elections um, he became first in the primaries just a couple of months ago and these are the first this is the first round it's not expected that he'll win straight out but certainly Everybody's watching Sunday to see exactly what deliver. And uh, uh, you're in Argentina at the moment. And for, for voters, from their perspective, do you think for many of them, they look at that inflation rate, they look at the fact that they get paid and then their money's not worth so much just a few weeks later, that tackling inflation is the number one issue for them? It's literally 
all they talk about. It's what everybody wants to change. And I think that's exactly why we're seeing somebody like Javier Millet rise, because people, you know, uh, currently there's a, a Peronist leftist government uh, that uh, many people feel has done nothing. Um, you know, they've been conservatives before that, who they feel have done nothing. Um, and uh, as somebody who's got some radical ideas, it's almost like we'll just try anything now to get out of this um, difficult uh, situation. So, um, I mean, it's going to be interesting on Monday what, what, how the markets react to, you know, if Millet, you know, comes first, if he gets, takes a round in one go, uh, takes the elections in one go. I mean, I think everybody's watching to see exactly what it will mean. But certainly I've been speaking to people who, who just feel that they'll give anything a go just for it to change and the situation to get better and their money to stop devaluing every single day. Mm, um, because, you know, everybody talks about Argentina being in an economic crisis and it just keeps on going. It does keep on going. And when you speak to those people, they want it to change. Do they think it will change? I mean, the, those who I was at uh, in Millet's uh, closing campaign event and everybody felt that definitely turn things around and, and you know when I said to one of his campaign um, leaders on uh, social media campaign leaders I said you know people are worried about somebody who's got no experience taking over um, and he said you know well people should be worried about the numbers in, in Argentina why not you know give somebody a chance um, and I think that's you know that's that's what's just thrown these elections totally you know out in the open to see exactly what can be achieved anything can be different how do you move how does Argentina move forward from something that feels so permanent um, but yet something that just get, makes everybody's lives just harder and harder every single day. Katie thank you very much indeed for joining us from Buenos Aires. A few glitches on the lines there but we got the gist of what Katie was telling us and she talked there about these plans to dollarize the economy get rid of that local currency the peso well the BBC's Natalia Cosoy has been asking business owners will that really work? This industrial unit I'm in is the size of two football pitches it's full of machines steel bars, pipes and plates. 23 employees come and go with goods and operate the machinery and the tools. It's Wardes, a 46-year-old company that manufactures specialized painting equipment and sandblasting machines. Owner Juan Pardi says the peso is losing value so fast that some of his providers would rather not sell and keep their stock. He says that means it's become very difficult to buy the supplies he needs in Argentina. Some suppliers tell me, I'll sell to you, but please transfer dollars to me. He's also struggling to buy foreign parts as he cannot easily get hold of the dollars he needs, which are at a controlled exchange rate regulated by the government. I've lost foreign purchase orders. I couldn't export the goods because I was missing some components that come from abroad. So the business has shrunk. To fix the problem, libertarian presidential candidate Javier Milei says he will dollarize Argentina's economy and close down the central bank. He argues printing more money has just fueled inflation, which reached almost 140% this year. No one wants that repugnant paper that is the peso because it's the currency issued by Argentine politicians. And that paper can't be worth even excrement because that garbage is not even good as fertilizer. At a political rally, supporters of Javier Milei cheer for him. Some hold three-foot-wide fake $100 bills with the face of Millet, where Benjamin Franklin should be, including 19-year-old Leandro. 
With the increase in purchasing power through dollarization, people could save more. I think that with a liberal economy, we will grow. But many economists are not convinced. Leandro Bona works at the Latin America Faculty of Social Sciences. We don't have enough dollars to dollarize our economy, and nobody's going to loan Argentina's economy for this purpose. He says the only way the economy could be dollarized is making each dollar worth much more against the peso, for which the country would need a huge devaluation of its currency. We are going to earn less dollars than we earn now, even in pesos. Our wages would drop a lot. Back at the factory, owner Juan Pardi agrees. As business owners, we will find a way to survive, but the people who work for us, the marginalized, the uneducated, I believe the country will become very small in terms of the economy. Dollarization is not yet a done deal for Argentina. First, voters must choose who they want to be president on Sunday and whether they can live without the peso. We'll have more from Natalio in about five minutes' time. But what would dollarization actually mean for Argentina? It's an interesting concept. Some countries are considering it. Well, one country that uses the US dollar as its official currency is Ecuador, which has used it for over 20 years. I've been speaking to Marcelo Velez, an Ecuadorian journalist who recalls when it was first introduced. I still can remember the announcement on television. It was 2000 and it was after a very chaotic year. We experienced in 1999 uh, the collapse of the banking system. So it was like a combination of many crises that brought this collapse in 1999 and pretty much the dollarization was a desperate decision. But what is important is to understand that by that time, people already have lost faith on the national currency. With the collapse of the banking system, you didn't have access to your savings. It was a period of also high inflation. We had like around 90% inflation rate by that mm. time. It was brought in then, as you say, with high inflation, a difficult economic period. Now, when you look back, do you think it has brought some stability to the Ecuadorian economy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can question how it was done, the social impact, the impact for the working class, for the families. It, it was very dramatic. But if you check the history of Ecuador, I mean, you can see all these periods of instability, economic fiscal crisis, defaults. It, it has brought to the country some fiscal stability you can see it also, for example, on the inflation rate, uh, one of the lowest inflation rates in the region. And that has brought stability to the country. Before dollarization, you couldn't get a, um, a mortgage. You couldn't get a loan, a long-term loan, because the currency was readjusted every three, five, six months. After dollarization, people were able to get, for example, mortgages to 20 years or loans for 10 years. Can I ask you a final question about dollarization that some people talk about? And it's not an economic question. It's more a psychological yeah. question of a country giving up its own currency and linking to another currency like the dollar. Does that have any impact, do you think? Yes. I still remember the, the discussions around sovereignty and imperialism at that time. But I will say that conditions of the economy were so dire. People just was craving stability. So, yes, it brought some 
psychological aspect in terms of, yes, we are like a kind of colony, but I think that was compensated by the stability and the credibility or the faith people put in, in the dollar instead of the national currency and the national institutions. Let's bring in Chris Lowe, Chief Economist at FHN Financial in New York. Chris, why will the dollarization help control inflation? Surely if you just put in place you know, stringent fiscal policies, that would achieve it, wouldn't it? It, it certainly would, uh, it, it's, or stringent monetary policy for that matter. I, I think the issue is that um, in, in many of these countries, and it's not just Argentina, uh, the, the discipline required tends to last about as long as whoever is in power and puts discipline in place. Uh, there, there is a tendency to go back to uh, spending money without regard to where it comes from and printing money without regard to where it comes from. By going to a, a another currency, that temptation is removed. Uh, and, and of course, if you think about it, uh, Hong Kong, with its peg for years and years, effectively had a dollarized economy as well. It's interesting. It worked very well for them. Yeah, it did. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because while we have these some countries who are saying, let's dollarize, we've got countries like Brazil, China, India, to some extent, saying, hey, let's move away from the dollar. Yeah. Uh, and I think the big concern you hear from China and Brazil is that the U.S. already has so much influence in the world, they don't want to increase that influence. That is certainly the case. A lot more from Chris coming up in the program. Now, one of Argentina's biggest sources of foreign currency, which we've been talking about, is agriculture. It's a big exporter of soy, corn and wheat. Natalio has also been speaking to the country's farmers to get their views on the election. My name is Martin Palazon. I'm an economist, but I work in the farm. I'm the fourth generation of uh, agriculture. And we are now in Buenos Aires province and in San Pedro City. I'm standing in the middle of this uh, wheat crop. It's a part of 700 hectares of wheat in this farm. It's not the size it should be by this time. And this is not a particularly good year for wheat. We are needing a lot of water now, at least 200 millimeters in this month. And do you think it will be easy to get that amount of water that you need? No, I am not expecting a just amount, but I think that today uh, they are expecting 30 millimeters. That would be fine for waiting. The most important is that the flower is very short today, and we are expecting at least double the size we are having now. So it's not a good year? No. Last year was very difficult year, uh, not only in, in wheat, but also in corn and in soybeans. We have some hectares that we haven't harvested because we have no crops. Farmers are preserving the value of their grains by delaying sales until the outcome of the election is finalised, gambling on potential tax cuts when a new government comes into office. We don't know what to do, nobody sells, because we don't have what expectations we have with the government, so it's very difficult to take decisions. What do you see from each of the candidates? What, what do you think about their proposals regarding the economy and particularly farming? Well, as 
far as you know, we have retentions on the export prices. So only one of the candidates said that in short term she will take out uh, the retentions. The other two, one said between time until it finished the crisis. And the other one is not a, an expectation to take out the retentions in our prices of like wheat and soybean. Yeah, retention is a special ty type of tax. Yes, it's a tax for exportation. So instead of having the 100% of the total price in soybean, you all have 70%. So it's quite difficult to make our budgets in Argentina. Carlos Odriozola is the secretary of the Argentine Rural Society, Sociedad Rural Argentina, a farmers' interest group. He's not optimistic about the presidential candidate's promises. Promesas fueron muchas. They've made a lot of promises, although now that we're getting closer to the elections, some of those promises are being watered down. I don't know if you know, but here we have to pay a tax simply to export, whereas in most countries in the world it's the other way round. So for soybeans we're taxed at 33%, for corn and wheat 12%, meat 9% and so on for other products. It's hellish. But the rapid devaluation of the currency is another issue important to Argentinians in this election. Faced with this economic collapse, the best thing you can do is to buy things that are priced at the official dollar rate and pay for them now. So fertilizers, herbicides, seeds, everything you need for the harvest, you've already bought them in advance and paid for them because you've got no other choice. You're not going to wait around while the peso devalues even further, which it's bound to do. So instead, you buy things in advance. Argentina's wheat crop sales are the slowest in seven years, as farmers wait for more rain and the outcome of the country's presidential election on Sunday. But whatever the outcome, it seems that optimism about the future is far from the minds of farmers like Martin and Carlos in Argentina. Until the votes are cast, the economic future of the agriculture industry remains unclear and uncertain. Natalia there with that last report there from Argentina. We will, of course, bring you the results of those elections on our business programmes and analysis on Monday. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Unexpected Elements is the podcast exploring the science behind the headlines. That's an interesting concept. It's just bubbling with excitement. Each week, we take a news story you've probably heard of and use the science surrounding it as a springboard to dive into other stories that may not be on your radar. We're here in my bee lab. In front of a box of bees. <laughs> there were no bad side effects at all. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Let's head a bit north now to the USA because General Motors has raised its offer to striking car workers. It's now offering them 25% compounded wage rise with a 10% hike in the first year. That's in line with the offer that rival company Ford has also made. But in the past few hours, Sean Fain, the head of the powerful United Auto Workers Union, has rejected this latest offer. What's unsustainable is taking the billions we generate in profit and handing them directly to Wall Street. They're telling us there's no more money while they loot the company through the back door. So let's talk about what happened this week at GM Stellantis and compare that to Ford. With no new plants out, both companies put a lot more money on the table. That's because they know if they don't move, there will be serious consequences. But it's a balancing act. As we see at Ford, 
We took their biggest plan out, and they haven't come back with anything new. As I've said countless times, our goal is to get the best agreement possible, not to strike randomly just for the hell of it. Our strategy means we escalate if and only if we think it will win big. Let's speak to Bob King now, the former head of the United Auto Workers Union. Thanks for joining us once again on the programme. Bob, do you think we're going to see escalation here? Well, it's up to the companies. That's what uh, President Fain has said all along. If they keep improving their offers and there are some really critical areas uh, that they have to improve in, uh, then they won't be put out. But if they don't, uh, then additional plants will go out. Just remind our listeners, they've had this 25% compounded wage rise. What are they looking for at the moment? Well, you know, workers' real wages are down 30% while the corporation has been making big profits. They've been paying their executives big amounts. They've been given a lot in dividends and stock buybacks. The workers have been left behind. So all President Fain and all the workers are demanding is that they – get restored everything they did to save the companies. Okay, but what so sort of, what, so, what is that amount? I mean, a lot of people listening to this, Bob, would think 25% compounded wage rise, that's not bad, 10%. Well, if you, but if you look at, they've lost 30% uh, during this, I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't even staying even. They've lost 30% of their buying power. So 25% is less than the 30% they've lost. So that's not sufficient for workers to feel like they're getting a fair deal. Then there are really important issues, like General Motors has not agreed to give the guarantee they won't shut plants by saying, okay, if we break our word, you have a right to strike. That's an important issue that both Stellantis and Ford have agreed to. You've got the whole issue of transition, a, a fair transition to electric vehicles. So they're, they're big issues that are unresolved still. Yeah, a lot of issues. Stay there for a minute, Bob. I want to bring Chris back in. Jerome, okay, sure. pa- Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, when he hears wage increases of, you know, 25%, he's not going to be happy, is he? Well, yeah, but look, you've got to keep it in perspective because the auto workers did not get big raises mm. when inflation was roaring back in 2021 and early 22, and the rest of the workforce was getting wages. So actually, even with a, a ton of strike activity, and there was record strike activity in August, uh, wage growth in the U.S. is slowing down in general. So perspective. The the union is simply not that big relative to the U.S. economy as a whole. Going back to you, Bob, on this now, do you think that the strike action, we've seen a slight increase here from GM, haven't we? Is it forcing the companies to think again? Do you think we're going to get closer to what the unions want now because that strike action is beginning to hit them? No, I, I think definitely so. I, I think the fact that GM and Stellantis saw, you know, the really critical Kentucky plant go down for Ford, encouraged them to improve their offers pretty substantially this week, not not just in the wages, but, you know, across the board on, on a number of issues. So um, I think the strategy is working. I hope that the companies do the final things they need to do to get a settlement and get people back to work. But it's a, it is up to the companies. They have, they have the, certainly have the financial wherewithal. It was 
In some ways, I was surprised President Fain didn't put another Ford plant off after they said mm. they couldn't do any more. And then they did a $600 million dividend for stockholders when they say they don't have more for the workers. Well, we, yep, that is That's a point that he has continually made, isn't it? Thank you so much for joining us once again, Bob, on the program and bringing us that perspective. Now, Finnish police say their investigation into the breach of the undersea gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia is now focused on a Chinese ship called the New New Polar Bear. Until now, suspicion has fallen mostly on Russia. I've been speaking to Henry van Hanen, a research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. Well, at this point, of course, the investigation is still ongoing and tracing the routes of these particular ships, two ships, one under a Russian flag and the one under a Hong Kong flag. So right now, the important thing is to find out the exact movements of the ships. At this point, it's still very early to point fingers, and it's very hard to say for certain. What do we know at the moment? We know that this pipeline was intentionally damaged, don't we? We have a strong reason to believe that there's intentional damage due to the reports that we have heard from Finnish and Estonian governments. And they are clearly saying that the damage caused to these critical infrastructure has been caused by external actors, which gives us strong reason to believe that this could potentially be a sabotage. So we will need to gather evidence. That's why the investigation will still take some time to be able to say for certain which ships have been moving in these territories. We do know that at the time when the suspected outside damage was done to these infrastructures, was during the same time as these two ships were close to the critical infrastructure. How important is this pipeline and why would somebody want to sabotage it? When you look at it from a Finnish perspective, for example, we know that the Finnish energy diversification over the past decade has meant that Finland is not reliable on Russian energy. And of course, this pipeline was built in order to decrease dependency on Russian natural gas. The reason why someone would want to sabotage a pipeline is, I mean, there could be multiple reasons. It could be to test our awareness, our ability to secure and make sure that our infrastructure is safe. So this could also be an intelligence operation if it's indeed done by an outside state actor. It can also be to indicate us that this is a normal part of Baltic Sea security these days. You have to take the threats against critical infrastructure seriously. And so I think the other big question will be, if it indeed we're able to attribute this to a state actor, how will we react? Because we don't have a clear set of countermeasures for something like this. But it would be important to react quite firmly in order to deter and try to decrease events like these in the future. We talk a lot nowadays, don't we, about energy security. It's something that every country is trying to achieve. And that is why this is so important, isn't it? It's why it's crucial to find out what actually happened here. How close are we to finding that out? I think the difficulty in events like these is that it's very hard to find the smoking gun. We can have substantial evidence. We can have strong indications and reasons to believe. For example, in the case of Russia, we do know that they have a specific fleet that is capable of conducting such operations. We do know that the Russians have for years now been mapping out, for example, offshore wind parks, data cables, gas pipe locations in the Arctic and Baltic Sea region. So that would give a strong indication to believe that if indeed this is outside sabotage, it is most likely 
a country that is capable of doing such things. But it is certainly, I think, a reminder to us that not all the threats that we see in our modern world is not just about conventional warfare and tanks rolling over the borders of other countries, because this not a clear act of war per se, but on the other hand, it is an attack against critical infrastructure if indeed it's a governmental actor. This is the type of threat that is more acute than an all-out conventional escalating war. Henry van Hannen there telling us the latest on what happened with that gas pipeline. We've had some news that's come through in the last 45 minutes or so. A judge in New York has given final approval for Deutsche Bank to pay $75 million to victims of the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. They accused the bank of missing warning signs that enabled Epstein to traffic and abuse women. It does not acknowledge wrongdoing as part of that settlement. We'll be back with Business Matters in a couple of hours' time. But that's it for World Business Report.